What's the Point is brought to you by 1-800-Flowers. And I'll cut right to the chase. Valentine's Day, it's basically here. 1-800-Flowers delivers the best selection and highest quality flowers all by mail. And right now, 1-800-Flowers is having a huge Valentine's Day flash sale. 20% off of everything. Here's how to take advantage of the flash sale. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com. Click on the radio microphone in the upper right corner and use the code POINT. That gets you to the store using our code. And then for 20% off of everything you see, select what you want to send and then enter the code RADIO20 at checkout. So this is your last chance to order from 1-800-Flowers for Valentine's Day. Use the promo code POINT on the homepage and RADIO20 at checkout to get 20% off in this huge flash sale. So a lot of people say, and this really makes me annoyed, that Google and Facebook are selling your data. And that is not true. Google and Facebook are selling your attention. And it's different. Google and Facebook don't want to give your data up. They have a really valuable resource. They have a monopoly around knowing so much about you. So what they're doing is they're selling your eyeballs. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. If you've been a listener to this show, you know that we regularly touch on issues of privacy as it relates to data, and I'd like to think we do a pretty good job of talking about what are complicated issues in a responsible way and in a way that hopefully clarifies. But I was recently called out by one of you in an email, which I really love, and here's what I'm doing wrong. A few times over the course of this podcast's existence, I've been guilty of, when talking about privacy, Maybe setting up a question and saying something like, if you think about the way that Google and Apple and Facebook use our data and our privacy, and then I go on to make some point or ask a question, but in there, I'm conflating Google, Apple, and Facebook, and I really shouldn't be. That's a mistake. Those companies actually have very different approaches to using our data and notions of what privacy is. So this week, let's try to get some clarity on that very question. Our guide is Kashmir Hill, editor of Real Future at Fusion and all-around awesome tech writer. No significant digit today. We're going to jump right into the interview. And I started asking Cash Hill whether this listener was right to give me a hard time. Here she is. I think a lot of people struggle with understanding privacy and different companies' attitudes toward it. And I have heard a few mistakes in past episodes. And so (laughs) I'm going to say, yes, you're guilty and I am here to confront you on it. Well, are they different? Are Facebook, Google, and Apple different in terms of, of how they think of my personal data for their particular use? They definitely are different. And one of the easiest ways to break it down is... Google and Facebook are data companies for the most part, and Apple is a hardware company. Apple is selling you something that you pay for. You're buying phones from them. You're buying computers from them. Their fundamental business isn't collecting data, cutting it and slicing it and figuring things out about you in order to sell your attention or sell you to advertisers. And Google and Facebook, fundamentally, that is their business model. And so that completely changes these companies' attitudes towards privacy. So that's 
conflation number one that I made as a mistake. But isn't Apple straddling both those sides? Because they provide me with software. They provide me with a way to behave on the internet and, and then connect with other people, not just pure hardware, right? That's something that's starting to happen. Like all companies are becoming software companies. This is the, the valuable business to be in. And so people really freaked out, for example, um, in the Apple operating system that recently came out, there was something called Spotlight that searched your whole computer for information and was sending things to the cloud. And people really freaked out about that and did not like that. You know, Apple has a very successful business in iTunes. And so, uh, and they have Apple Music now. So they're paying attention to your listening habits. And um, they are becoming more of a data company. But fundamentally, the big money for them is in you're buying a really expensive iPhone or uh, the latest version of the MacBook. Uh, but yes, everybody's moving towards software. And then there's something to be said for what the attitude is of the company coming into that game. And I think Apple has kind of proven itself to be really concerned about privacy in the way that it's designed things. How would you characterize their attitude, as squishy of a word as that is, towards privacy? Most recently, we've seen this around the encryption debate. The government is freaking out about the fact that we now have end-to-end encryption in a lot of consumer products, which means if you and I decided we wanted to send messages to each other, we could encrypt them to a particular key so that only you and I can open that message. And the company that is in the middle of our communicating couldn't just open it up and hand it over to the police if they thought, you know, we were having some kind of illegal exchange. And so Apple decided that they were going to encrypt everything on the iPhone by default. So as soon as you put a password on it uh, or your, your thumbprint password, you have to supply that password or your thumbprint in order to look at the data that's in the phone. And this has been super frustrating for the cops because if they see somebody's iPhone and they think there's some information on there that's going to help them you know, find a missing person or prove they're guilty of criminal activity, they have to get that person to hand over their password or their fingerprint in order to get into it. And Tim Cook has said, you know, privacy is a human right. We need this. And it's more important than law enforcement's desire to get into our, our customers' phones. So does, the, does Apple's stance on encryption somehow undercut their bottom line? It does. So let's look at, so Apple has, for example, end-to-end encryption on iMessages. Google, on the other hand, at this point, doesn't have easy end-to-end encryption on your email. So when I send somebody an email, I'm sending it in a way that Google can look at what's in there. And Google doesn't have like a person at Google that's reading my email, but they do have machines that are analyzing every email that's sent. And that machine was built by a person. (laughs) It was was built by a person. And then they're showing me contextual ads around that. And Google makes a ton of money doing that. So Google decided, hey, we're going to give every single person end-to-end encrypted email to make them safer from the government. That would really hurt their bottom line because they could no longer put contextual ads around the emails that people were sending. It might be worth taking a little step back and just talking as as briefly as we can about how this stuff gets monetized. So you mentioned Google will look for keywords in your email and then serve you ads accordingly. How, how does Facebook try and monetize your, your data and your activity and how is Apple trying to do that? So a lot of people say – and this really makes me 
annoyed that Google and Facebook are selling your data. And that is not true. Google and Facebook are selling your attention and it's different. Google and Facebook don't want to give your data up. They have a really valuable resource. They have a monopoly around knowing so much about you. And they don't want to just like hand that over to another party because then they lose this valuable sole access to the data. So what they're doing is they're selling your eyeballs. They're telling an advertiser, we know a ton about this person and we can put the best ad in front of them. And then we can even tell you in Facebook's case that if they saw that ad, they then went out and bought that product because they've, they now have these partnerships with advertising agencies that can do that. So the way that they make their money is that dish detergent company comes along and says, I want to target people who are really into green lifestyles and I want to target them with my natural dish detergent. And so Facebook says, hey, we know exactly who those people are based on things they've posted, the groups that they like, their friends. So we'll show them that ad and then we'll tell you if they went out and actually bought that dish detergent after seeing your ad. And so that is what, what Facebook and Google are selling. They're selling the fact that they know a lot about you, but they're not necessarily selling everything they know about you. A lot of things about this clearly perplex me, but um, one of the things that kind of I, I think about, which is the notion of your activity and then your identity. And obviously they're related and obviously, you know, we could go down a whole rabbit hole of like, are you in anything more than just the sum of your activities? But in this particular context, it feels like some of these companies, maybe I'm wrong, are more interested in just like your raw activity. And it's like, we you know, want to anticipate what part of the web you land on and then be there to serve you an ad. And then others are more invested in knowing who I am and my values and my personality traits and trying to build a profile of me that then they flip into some sort of monetization. Is that like, like a worthwhile distinction? I think so. Though when I think about the latter, I think more of like political campaigns because in order to sell you a candidate, they really need to know more about you than just what you're doing at that exact moment. But yes, I mean, that's, that's part of why, I mean, something that's kind of been difficult for Facebook is that they know a lot about you. They have this big profile, but Google knows what you want at that exact moment. And so their ads can be more valuable because it's like, I, I need some new black boots. And so I'm Googling black boots and that's a great time to show me an ad from Nine West as opposed to on Facebook, trying to figure out that maybe I want some black boots based on all this Right. It's All funny. Facebook may like me. understand me, but they may not get my activities as well because it's not a place where you're sort of like reduced to that pure interaction in a way that you are with Google, I guess. Right. My needs at this exact moment. So let's let's do a little Google versus Facebook comparison then if they're kind of over here and then Apple is maybe slightly in a different camp. Is it too simplistic to try and place them on a spectrum and say one of those two cares more about privacy than the other? I think it's really hard to say whether Google or Facebook is the more privacy conscious company, especially post Snowden. I think it moved a lot of companies kind of into the same arena. It's even pushed phone companies, which are historically like not super privacy respective, um, even into that camp. But yeah, they're kind of in this, uh, in this place where they want to prove to consumers that they care about privacy and they especially need to prove it to European consumers since after Snowden, the U.S. government said, you know, we respect U.S. people's privacy, but they didn't say <laughs> foreigners, like it's all up in the air. All right. But what you're saying is basically like 
there's a market incentive to make you know a nod towards privacy. Since since Snowden, Facebook has set up a Facebook hidden services site on Tor, so you can secretly access Facebook, and Facebook will still know you know who you are. But it was this sign that they were just putting a flag up in there, like we care about privacy, we care about protecting you from being tracked. Um, Facebook bought WhatsApp, which is this messaging company, and WhatsApp partnered with Whisper Systems to set up end-to-end encryption on messages. So you can actually send messages privately through WhatsApp. And it got WhatsApp temporarily banned in Brazil because the government wanted access to a drug dealer's messages they'd sent. Facebook also had, and Google had, problems with the Federal Trade Commission where they got in trouble around privacy problems, um, different for each company. But they're both under these agreements now with the FTC where they had to create like a privacy by, by design program and they get audited by the FTC every two years. And so they've both, I think, moved into a more privacy respective regime, but they are still companies that monetize your data in some way. So how do you think of those efforts? I mean, are they like a let's appease the EFF members over here and then we'll keep doing our thing over here? Or do, or do they strike you as good faith efforts towards privacy? I think they genuinely have come around to, uh, and I think this happens a lot. This actually happened to me personally as a journalist. When I first started writing about privacy, my attitude was, man, privacy is super overvalued. Everyone's always freaking out about the latest privacy scandal. We're not paying enough attention to the benefits that come from using our data and all the good stuff we get and the fact that this whole internet is free and all you have to do is put up with a little bit of tracking. And you just, by the way, asked my next five questions for me. But yes, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> and so the, I evolved over the years because I was writing about it all the time. And then I saw like serious downsides to the use of data and the way it really screwed people over. And so I became way more privacy respective. And I kind of feel like Mark Zuckerberg and I were on the same journey. Like he used to say, I don't believe in privacy. And now now he's saying, man, the NSA really pissed us off. So let's talk about that because I think one thing you've written about and, and, and you mentioned Tim Cook and you just mentioned Mark Zuckerberg, how much of these companies approach towards privacy is a product of the you know vision of their CEO? I, I think privacy is in, in the DNA of companies. And then I do think it is reinforced from the top. And Mark Zuckerberg, I think, has like come closer to this caring about privacy. He certainly cares about it personally. He kept his wedding a secret and you can tell he just cares more about his personal zone of privacy than he did when he was a college kid, which totally makes sense. But Tim Cook is a serious believer in privacy. I mean, we're just seeing it and how fierce he is being around the encryption debate. He really values it. And I think Apple as a, as a company in the products we see and the actions they take, we, we see his attitudes. Um, and then obviously you like can't control everything that happens in a company. So like one of the big privacy scandals that happened at Google was Google Y spy as, as it came to be known, but it's where they were driving. Okay. That wasn't the official name. Uh, no, that's what it's we, like, we journalists thing that. Yeah. Okay. That's what we called it. <laughs> um, they, you know, they drive street view cars all, all over the place taking photos of everywhere so that you have like these wonderful maps. And one engineer, according to Google, one engineer decided, hey, you know, while we're mapping 
the, the physical world, why don't we just map the digital world too? Let's just like collect whatever we see going on Wi-Fi networks that's unencrypted. We'll just kind of like pull down and just see like what, what's going on in the world. What are people looking at? What's flying through the air? And so it captured passwords. It captured unencrypted emails. It was a big scandal. And it was just like one person in the company decided to throw it in the code at the last minute, according to Google's official but, stance on this. But basically, it doesn't matter kind of what stance and values the leadership has. These are such massive companies that have this fundamental kind of market incentive that stuff's going to happen, which I guess brings up the question like, okay, you can talk about values as much as you want. But at the end of the day, is like, what's going to actually regulate privacy? Is it the companies themselves or do we just need you know actual government regulation so there's more companies that have privacy officers now more companies that have like privacy teams google and facebook now have those that you know meet with engineers that do privacy assessments of programs and i think that'll help uh and, and then the weird thing is like we don't have a you know a chief privacy official we don't have like a privacy commissioner which a lot of other countries have here in the u.s Basically, the Federal Trade Commission has kind of angled its way into being the Privacy Commission, and they've been going after companies for doing bad things like a, a, a rent-to-own company that put spyware in their computers and took photos of people having sex and walking naked from the shower. And um, they've tried to basically go after a lot of companies for privacy or security violations and, and create a kind of regime under which they can enforce privacy expectations. But yeah, we otherwise don't really have a great regulatory framework for that beyond class action lawyers. And so in your vision, you think there should be like an office of privacy? I mean, I think it makes sense. I, but you know, I actually think it should be bigger than an office of privacy. <laughs> All right, two offices, maybe like a, like a corner office. I think it should be like a department of, of, computer ethics or something. Uh Uh, I mean, that sounds horrible and give me more time to come up with a good name. But there's all these, I mean, there's privacy issues, there's security issues. And then we're starting to get into this world of like algorithmic issues that somebody should be like checking algorithms to make sure they're not discriminating against people. And I kind of see this all in the same, same Venn diagram. Okay, maybe this is what we'll do. This will, this will be our first what's the point crowdsource is we'll ask listeners to come up with what the, the – what was it? The Department of Computer Ethics, the DCE. What would that look like? Is it a cabinet-level position? We'll draft a memo and we'll send it to <laughs> President Trump in uh, 2017. Oh, no. You know, one thing that you have written about and that you, you mentioned to me was that it's often the like third-party firms that are selling ads and trying to monetize that are the ones who are – blurring the line and kind of doing the creepiest privacy things. So what what, what is this world of third-party firms and, and what are they up to? Facebook, Google, Apple, you have a direct relationship with them. And if they do something horrible to your privacy, you're going to get angry and you might stop having a relationship with them. You might delete your Facebook account or stop using Gmail um, or get a different kind of phone. But there are all these other companies that are collecting a bunch of data about you that you have no relationship with. You've never even heard of them. They work through advertising networks. So, you know, you'll have advertising networks that are on every website all around the web and they're dropping cookies. And so they, you know, trace you going from website to website to website. And then they start creating a dossier and you'll have companies you've never heard of that make lists of rape survivors or people with Alzheimer's that, you know, you should 
target deals at because they're likely to fall for them or, you know, subprime. There's literally people there who are saying we need to compile a list of rape survivors to market this particular product at them. There is literally that list that you can buy. And then but then they cut a deal with a Google or or Facebook. They aren't selling that list to a Google or a Facebook. They're selling that list to another company you've never heard of. They they basically have sometimes lists that have like names on it, um, but sometimes it's a list of a, like a cookie segment. And so you can mm-hmm. just advertise to this particular list. You can target them um, and you never know their names, but you know that they might be interested in a particular product. And so they'll start seeing those targeted ads on their computers. And so what's the solution to that? Uh, that's where we kind of need a regulatory body. That's where that we says, need our DC. Hey. I mean, like what they have in Europe is uh, they have right to access. And so you can go to any company and say, tell me what you know about me. Uh, I actually did this with Zynga, mm-hmm. um, which is this gaming company, because I, I'm still obsessed with words with friends, which everyone tells me is not cool anymore email them and request my whole file. And so they sent me this this huge file that was everyone I ever played with, all the IP addresses I had ever used to access Words of Friends. And then my mom, they sent a file to. And first they accidentally sent the wrong file that had information about a whole bunch of other people. They accidentally <laughs> sent her a PDF of a whole bunch of emails that they had been exchanged. Anyways, um, it was an embarrassing thing for for them, especially for the mother of a privacy journalist. Yes. Uh, but then they sent her her file, and somebody had actually like when she played, she played with her profile photo as a photo of my nephew, and somebody had actually gone in and said, "Baby wearing a Rolling Stones T-shirt." which was so weird. But anyways, like other countries have <laughs> right to access where you can see what does this data broker have on me? And we don't have mm-hmm. anything like that. And there's one data broker that will let you get access to your your file and you can see what they think of you. And you can like sign in and they'll let you correct it if it's wrong or you can leave it wrong if you'd rather have that kind of privacy through obscurity. And what happens if you happen to go to Cupertino and walk up to Apple headquarters and say, hey, I want... I want to know everything you know about me. So Facebook has this. You can download your file. Um, right. And it'll give you your face print. And yeah, you can get your whole file. They resist but it won't it for a tell long you time, what, but now they what they've it. done with your data. They won't it tell won't... you, okay, we use this information to cut a deal with this third party or this, this ad service. Well, again, I would say Facebook doesn't do that. Facebook doesn't sell your data. Right. They sell access to you. And they know that file doesn't say... It doesn't give you a list of all the advertisers who paid to put ads on your page, which would be super interesting. Um, but I think they would g- regard that as proprietary or you know too difficult to collect or definitely not in their business interest to show you. But yeah, they, they do have that. You can download it. It's like a lot of, a lot of information, <laughs> many hundreds of pages for most people. Right. And that I think is part of um... – Something we, it's definitely worth mentioning is that even when you get access to this, it's, you know, it's in such jargon. It's such overwhelming amount of information. I mean, I know there's that whole movement to sort of clarify terms of service agreements. I mean, I clicked agree on a terms of service agreement to update my iOS this morning and I read, you know, three words of it and I moved on. And so I think that's a big part of this conversation is we can have a push towards privacy, but if it's still the way that we kind of are given our information back to us is too obscure to even just to understand it, then it doesn't really accomplish anything. And one of the huge problems in the U.S. is basically the law that rules privacy is that you shouldn't do anything that your privacy policy doesn't say that you'll do. 
And so a lot of people think when they see a privacy policy, that means, oh, good, like I have privacy on this site. But privacy policies are actually telling you every way they're going to violate your privacy. Mm -hmm. And most people don't know that. And once you agree to whatever it is, the company is basically legally protected as long as they just don't do anything that they didn't say they were going to do. I've mentioned Facebook and Google and Apple, and those are the ones that I think I've tended to conflate and just think of as as a piece. But should are there other companies I should be mentioning, or other kind of relationships we have that you feel like are are worth discussing? I do. Um, so, so a lot of people say, you know, if if you're not paying for it, you're the product. But sometimes you're paying for it, and you're still the product. And this happened in the last couple of years around my my phone provider and uh, some of the other carriers. Uh, but Verizon was the first. Verizon's kind of the most creative when it comes to trying new business models. But Verizon decided that they were going to start collecting information about their users' movements, their browsing activity, using their, their browser on their phone, and then packaging that up into reports. And they would anonymize it and not have like my name attached to it, but they package it into a report and sell it to advertisers because it's super valuable information. They could tell somebody whether, you know, you were at a stadium and you saw a car ad and then you later went to that car dealership. So they decided to start doing that. And so they were selling on the side. Uh, and so I was both paying them $100 a month and then they're making X on, on selling that. And they opted everybody into it. And you had to, one, be aware that it was happening and then two, go and say, actually, I want my privacy. I don't want you to sell this about me. And, 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 and so it isn't just like, it isn't just mm-hmm. Facebook and Google because they get the worst rap, but there's lots of other companies that are figuring out that, you know, you can make a significant income stream by collecting data about your users when you have these kind of intimate relationships with them because of the devices that are increasingly around us collecting data. Okay, let's talk about the relationship with the government and these companies. So what happens when the government comes knocking? Do Facebook, Google, and Apple respond in different ways? So Facebook, Google, and Apple, I would say they all try to resist government requests for information. They have like a really hard stance on this. And they're actually been like proactive about not handing information over. And I think part of that is because they're in Silicon Valley. There's this whole kind of libertarian feel out here. And it's that's kind of baked into the DNA of these Silicon Valley companies. And so they have really taken a stand on government information requests versus say like uh, Verizon and AT&T, which historically for many different reasons had very close relationships with the government. And we started to see it around Glenn Greenwald, that first story he broke about how Verizon mm-hmm. was just regularly handing over all of this metadata about calls. And that's something that you, I just don't think a government, uh, Google or an Apple or Facebook would have voluntarily have wanted yeah. to do. I think that's actually really important to highlight because I think in general people, and maybe I've been guilty of it, but I think I get this, that like the phone companies are different from the tech companies when it comes to the relationship with the government. And there was a reason all of the Snowden stuff was about phone companies first and foremost. And then something that most of the tech companies do is they have a program called Photo DNA, and that scans basically every photo that you upload and looks to see if it matches known child pornography. If it does, they'll block it 
or they'll report it. And that's why all these like child porn lovers have gone to the dark net and on these secret sites because they can't exchange their photos through these sites. But between Facebook and Google, there's a little bit of, I would say, a difference in how they think about their roles as law enforcement. Facebook, for example, it has an algorithm that will scan messages that go between certain suspicious parties. So if they see an adult speaking to a child that that adult shouldn't have a relationship with through Facebook, uh, the algorithm will basically kind of highlight that as suspicious and Facebook will review that and they will hand over information to the police about like, hey, it looks like there's a sexual predator on our site. But proactively handed over. Proactively handed over. And that's something Google could easily do as well. I mean, they could see, um, they could do, I mean, they could look at people looks like they're doing drug deals on Gmail or, um, you know, predators that look like they're going after kids and they could proactively hand that over to police. But Google has always steered clear of that. And it's because I think they want people to feel comfortable that they can do whatever they want to do on Gmail without being surveilled except to place ads. And so that's one difference I would say between Google and Facebook and kind of like how, how they see the role that they play. But the government does request data from these companies and they actually quantify it and release a report every year and say, this is how many times the government has asked for for our information, and I know you've written on on those reports in the past, and we actually looked up this year's numbers. Facebook, there were seventeen thousand five hundred seventy seven government user data requests, and Google had twenty five thousand. Apple had about uh, somewhere between five and ten thousand. Their their numbers are a little trickier, but in each one of these, they also released the percentage of requests where some data was produced. And all of them, it's like 79% for Facebook, 81% for Apple, 65% for Google. Should I think of that as like a kind of startlingly high number that 80% of the time the government makes a request for data, they get something back? Mm, I don't think it's startlingly high. I mean, I I, I think that the police have kind of gotten to a point where they know when they can go and ask for information and when they'll get it and when they won't. And I I think that Facebook and Google are pretty honest about what they'll hand back. And so they might not completely comply, but they might give like a little bit of information like, yes, you know, this is the email address. Here's the IP addresses. Um, But I I do think the companies are pretty good about saying like, we want a legitimate court order. We want a warrant. Um, Google, uh, there's a long history that you probably don't want to know, but there, there's this, uh, this rule called, um, ECPA, um, the electronic communications privacy act. And when the law was written way back when it said that anything older than 180 days was no longer subject to a warrant. And this was because the thought at the time was if something was older than that, because of the way that email worked, you'd basically abandon it in the cloud because people used to download emails to their computers as opposed to leaving it up there. And so for a long time, it meant that, you know, any email that was older than 180 days, the government could just get access to very, very easily. Um, and so that, that's the law in the books. That's the federal law. And at one point, there was a court case, a federal court case that only applied to a few states that said, uh, that's ludicrous. People have a reasonable expectation of privacy to emails that are sitting up there. And Google decided this applies everywhere. Even though it only applied for those states, they said this is this is the new law when it comes to um, the privacy or emails. And so in, in that way, they've been proactive about protecting privacy. And so the new standard is really we will evaluate it when you come and ask on a case-by-case basis and then we'll see if it clears the bar and we hand it over. But you need a warrant if you want to get people's emails. And that is, again, you know, different from the phone companies where it was kind of like here are the keys – 
go do your thing. And Facebook is currently fighting a, a lawsuit um, in New York. The NYPD came and said, we want access to all of the Facebook profiles from all of these cops and firefighters that we think are abusing the pension system, that they say they're injured and actually they're like riding a jet ski. And Facebook was forced to hand over all of their profiles and in many cases, like all the profile information for relatives of theirs. And they have been fighting it for a while saying, hey, this is this was a violation of privacy of our users and you shouldn't be able to make a broad request like this. And so we do see the companies trying to like push back against government requests for data. Do different companies kind of have different policies when they think about scraping stuff and removing stuff from your server and when your information expires or some companies keeping it in perpetuity? Most companies want to keep everything forever. Partly that's because it's in their business interest because the more data you have, like the more analysis you can do. And partly it's because it's what users want. Like, I think you'd be really pissed if you went to go find an old email and Gmail is like, oh, sorry, we deleted everything older than two years. Um, And so for the most part, they do keep everything. Um, Phone companies will tend to, certain things will expire over time. So they don't keep like all the IPs you logged in from forever or all of your location data forever. But yeah, for the most part, these companies do tend to lean towards keeping things. This actually kind of gets back to that sort of more philosophical like identity versus activity question because I think uh, Quinn Norton who I've spoken to on this show talks about how you know you should be allowed to have like a period where you do activity you know you you have a you have a phase where you're into a certain thing or you're sort of dabbling in another thing and and in real life you move past that phase and it possibly just like disappears forever it's a part of your past whereas Online, it leaves this digital trail and it may recede into the past, but if it's still there forever, it is still kind of like a bigger part of your digital identity than it is part of your real identity. I do think that's why Snapchat was so huge. Like it was this first ephemeral app where things disappeared and whether they were kind of conscious of it or not, I think all the like the young people who flooded to Snapchat like this idea of having trails that didn't last forever and that disappeared. And so I thought the rise of Snapchat would bring in this kind of rise of ephemerality and that there would be like more of an option that things would disappear, but it didn't it didn't really happen. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that you had like really evolved in terms of your notions of privacy. And I'm just curious, like in terms of your own personal behavior and then maybe in terms of kind of advice for listeners, are there like bright lines that you've drawn for yourself in terms of products you won't use or activity you won't engage in online? Um, I mean, I I prefer to experience the internet the way other people experience the internet, um, experience the world the way other people experience the world, because I think it informs my reporting. So I'm not like a crazy paranoid person. I do use privacy tools, security tools that other people don't necessarily use. You know, I use Signal, for example, to send encrypted text messages. Um, I that's, a, that's an app? That's an app, yeah. That's a... Okay. Uh, it's an app from open from whisper systems and you can make encrypted phone calls and send encrypted texts and it's free. 
uh, and it's great. Some people just use it because it's free international calling. I use Telegram, which then I learned is what ISIS uses, but that's another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but yes, nevertheless, you know, encrypted, and that's why I guess why they're using it. Sorry, go ahead. And sometimes I use like a, I went to um, this hacker conference called Hope in New York, and one of the panels. Uh, involves some people that are talking about like ways you can protect your privacy and they handed out a like a a Safeway like a grocery shopper loyalty card that they made tons of copies of and they just gave it to everybody in the room and they're like hey use this and then you still get the discounts when you go to Safeway but then your activity isn't being tracked in the same huh. way because you're sharing a profile with like a hundred other people. Um, and so I think that is a very interesting Meanwhile, idea. Safeway is like, we cannot figure this person <laughs> out. Like one day they bought this and then the next day they were in California and they bought this. Yeah. <laughs> and so they know that's kind of like a throwaway account. But yeah, there's like, yeah. There, I think about these things in a way that maybe other people don't think about them, but I, I don't live, I don't live a, a paranoid, completely paranoid life. Cash Hill from Fusion, thank you so much for doing this. This was really clarifying, and I hope I learned some lessons. And in the future, we talk about this stuff a little smarter, and I hope you come back on at some point. Yeah, I hope so, too. And I'll be listening, and I'll be sending you angry emails when you get something wrong. Now, send me angry encrypted text messages, okay? (laughs) I'll do that. Okay. Thank you very much. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Our intern is Jonathan Yales. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com with ideas for future shows or maybe more notes about what I'm screwing up. I suspect the floodgates are now open on that front. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Our other podcast, The Elections Podcast, is getting a ton of great reviews, which is wonderful. But What's the Point is falling a little behind. It's not a competition. I'm just saying, if you feel like leaving a rating or a review... You can find all of our shows and lots more at 538.com slash podcasts and on my Facebook page. Thanks for listening. See you soon.